Hello, everybody. Jace here. Just wanted to remind you, as San Diego Comic-Con is imminent, that my friends over at Rocket Ship Entertainment, the industry leader in publishing hit web comics, and the 2021 Ringo Award winner for Favorite Publisher, is going to make their first ever appearance at San Diego Comic-Con this year for 2022. Uh, their booth is number 2707. It's on the main show floor. Fans can pick up graphic novels, games, merchandise, including two exclusives, from the Eisner-nominated smash hit Let's Play, the San Diego Comic-Con exclusive Let's Play coloring book, and the San Diego Comic-Con exclusive Starbucks Bowser t-shirt. And if you're a fan of Let's Play, you'll know exactly who Bowser is. He's the cutest little puppy in the world. Uh, the creator of Let's Play will be there, Leanne Krasik, as well as Nick Selleck from Lars the Awkward Yeti. They're going to be doing signings throughout the weekend, as well as other creators that have a rocket ship entertainment properties, such as Ryan Benjamin, Tom Zaller, Riley Brown, Sanford Green, Danny Shinya, Tom Akel, Sherard Jackson, Rob Feldman, and Kevin Scott, who's going to have a secret project announced during the legendary comics panel. So the signing schedule will be posted at the rocket ship booth. So be sure you swing by so you know when your favorite creators are going to be signing. There's going to be free prints as avail available as well. Also, Nick Selleck is going to be doing some free sketches from his property, Lars the Awkward Yeti and Heart and Brain. Ryan Benjamin is going to be doing some live sketching of characters from the upcoming Stan Lee's Genesis tabletop game. And there's also going to be portfolio reviews. So if you're a new or aspiring artist, you'd like to have your work critiqued on Thursday, the 21st from 1 to 2. Tom Akel and Ryan Benjamin will be reviewing portfolios. And then on Saturday, the 23rd from 1 to 2, Leanne Krasik will be reviewing portfolios. So sign up and get your work looked at by some very talented professionals. In addition to the booth, there are also going to be some panels. So we've got Taking Off with Rocket Ship Entertainment on Saturday, July 23rd from 6 to 7 in room 23ABC. Tom Akel, the CEO of Rocket Ship, is going to participate in the Kickstarting Comics in 2022 and beyond. That panel is Thursday, July 21st, 3 to 4 p.m. in room 9. And then finally, Ryan Benjamin is going to be talking about his boot camp art uh, program that he has going on. So the Comic Pro Boot Camp Art Demo is going to be Saturday, July 23rd from 1230 to 2 p.m. in room 2. So if you're interested at all, swing by the booth. Like I said, tons of giveaways, tons of great properties, and tons of great creators from Rocket Ship Entertainment. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Comic Source. I apologize that Rocky is not here. There was a tornado in his area of Canada, and it touched down just two and a half miles from his house. So thank God he's fine. His family's fine. His house wasn't damaged. Same can't be said for some of his neighbors, uh, but he did lose power, and I waited as long as I could, uh, and power has still not been restored. So uh, again, apologies. I'm going to fly solo on this um, and I'm prepping for Comic-Con. So 
I don't have the, uh, all the, all the time in the world. Um, and without Rocky here, I always feel like it's not as good of a show when we bounce ideas off each other and hear different perspectives. It seems to work better. Uh, but on the plus side, <laughs> there's nobody to disagree. The other thing is that we disagree, right? You guys actually seem to like that when we get fired up, um, about the, the issues. So that won't go down either this time. Uh, so all that being said, don't forget to listen to our other episode today. So you do still get your dose of Rocky. Um, and that is the best jacket spotlight. There are three best jacket books dropping today. Comixology originals from Scott Snyder. He's got Dudley Dotson and the forever machine with artist Jamal Eichel. He's got barnstormers with artist Tula Lote. And he's got Canary with artist Dan Panosian. So uh, be sure to check those out. And then Wednesday, an IDW release, Dark Spaces, which there's going to be a lot of different dark spaces. Um, that's almost like his imprint or his anthology line over at IDW. But the first one that comes out is actually written by him with art by Hayden Sherman called a Wildfire. And we, we really love that as well. So all the books are great. Definitely recommend them. You know, if there's none, I would say that were average. They were all above average to great. So go listen to the episode and get your uh, Rocky fix and, and pick up those Comixology originals, especially if you have Amazon Prime. It doesn't cost you anything extra. Uh, and then Wednesday, be sure you pick up the Dark Spaces. Also, be sure you're following the comic source for all our Comic-Con coverage this week. Uh, it's going to be a jam-packed convention. And uh, the best way to experience it is to follow along on Twitter. Try to post as much as I can much as I remember uh, pictures and, and whatnot with different creators and things I see there and, and all that kind of crazy stuff. So that being said, let me dive into the books for this week. I'll kick it off with uh, Batman Superman World's Finest. This is issue number five. It's written by Mark Wade. Dan Mora does the art. Tamara Bonvillan on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Uh, the Devil Nezha, chapter five, sacrifice play. We saw at the end of the last issue, Supergirl showed back up after traveling back in time, talking to the group of people that originally defeated Nezha. And basically, she's told Batman, Superman, and the Doom Patrol, yeah, someone's going to have to sacrifice themselves to stop Nezha. So basically, she's been given this seal by these heroes from the past, and the seal needs to be placed on the inside of the doors to Nezha's prison. So somebody's got to stay there. Um, to uh, to put it in. Too bad Phantom Girl is not around, right? Um, so before that can even happen, though, Nezha is, is fighting to get out of the prison. He is taking over various members of the this hero group, fighting um, amongst each other while they're trying to figure out how to stop Nezha. And uh, the action is very, very well depicted by Dan Mora. Uh, I feel like this is more of an action-oriented series than he's uh, than I've seen him do in the past. I mean, his Batman run had quite a bit of action, but this goes uh, beyond that, and it was a heck of a lot, heck of a lot of fun. So, um, when Superman manages to break hold of uh, of Nezha, uh, he flies off, and you know, not for a moment does anybody think that. Uh, you know, he's running off out of cowardice or, or what have you, but they're not sure where he's going. Uh, but what is interesting is they discover that Robot Man, of all people, is maybe the most formidable foe for Nezha because he is schooled and educated and has the ability to fight against anything in the world uh, that he knows, right? From the time uh, that he kind of walked the earth, nothing was as powerful as him. 
But the thing about Robot Man is he's, you know, technology and uh, evolution that didn't exist in Nezha's time. So Nezha's sort of trying to adapt to Robot Man as he's fighting him, doesn't really kind of understand the technology and the machinery and whatnot. So um, he actually has a bit of an upper hand and, and him and Batman using technology to fight Nezha does allow Superman to, to head off. And uh, once he heard that, once they realized, hey, Nezha's weakness is technology, um, you know, he knows all manner of, of technology and weapons and, and whatever there might be up to the time he was in prison. But any any advancements after that, he doesn't. So that kind of clicks in Superman's mind. He's like, well, if he, he knows Earth technology uh, and only ancient Earth technology, then I'll get something from Krypton that he's not familiar with. It's more advanced and we'll take him out that way. So he actually goes and gets the Phantom Zone projector and consigns Nezha to uh, to the Phantom Zone. So battle's over. It does seem a little bit anticlimactic in a way. Nezha is so powerful. And then at the end of the day, Superman just goes and gets this sort of ex machina-like weapon, ex deus machina weapon, and takes out Nezha. And then all of a sudden, I was like, what was the big deal? Um, but in that moment, Supergirl's telling the, the other heroes about Robin being lost in the time stream. And they're like, okay, you know, hope's not lost. We'll go find him. And as they're doing that, Nezha literally starts to break out of the Phantom Zone at that point. He's like ripping, um, almost like, you know, ripping hole in, in reality to get from the Phantom Zone to the, to the, uh, back to Earth. And it makes sense, right? Because like I was just saying, he, he does evolve. He does learn. He does adapt. And, uh, you know, very quickly, he's learning how to adapt to the Phantom Zone and somehow get back to our plane of existence. So it wasn't as easy of a victory as one might have thought. So uh, Superman takes it upon himself to grab the seal that Supergirl had dropped, grabs Nezha uh, as he's flying at super speed and goes into the prison, slams the doors, puts the seal on, and Batman tries to follow him in there and said let me in, you know let me in we can figure this out together and supergirl's like listen to yourself there's nothing you can do it's totally sealed and if you open the door you're gonna release this evil that can't be contained you've gotta let him go and they're kind of screaming at each other and um then batman realizes what superman like he must have had a plan right because he's batman's looking around and he realizes that the phantom uh, Phantom Zone projector is not there. And so they turn around to where that rip in reality was, and it's just barely still there. And Negative Man of the Doom Patrol manages to go over there, get his hands in between it, push it open uh, far enough for them to uh, to pull Superman through, uh, and then it closes behind him. So he, he had a plan and Superman says that he, you know, he had every confidence that Batman would figure out what his plan was um, because that's what Batman does, you know, even without Superman giving him uh, any clues. So uh, he said, yeah, I got, I got in there. Obviously he's vulnerable to magic. Didn't waste any time. Um, you know, used a phantom projector on himself and then destroyed it as he was um, disappearing into the, to the phantom zone. So they bury the tomb in rocks and then Batman says, you know, it's time to go looking through the time stream and find out wherever Robin is, they'll, they'll rescue him. And then there is an epilogue as we see um, Damien Wayne Robin climb through the all the wreckage and whatnot 
all these uh, rocks and debris that they buried the tomb in to get to the doors. And he's reaching out to the doors um, because as Rocky suspected, this island that um, they imprisoned Nezha on. Uh, and again, this, this epilogue is years later, it says, um, but the island that the Nezha tomb is on is Lazarus Island. So it makes a lot of sense based on what we saw in the Robin miniseries with the Lazarus tur- tournament and all that, or Lazarus tournament as Rocky likes to always say, but be that as may, he is right. And I do love that Mark Way is tying this into uh, Joshua Williamson's run. And this was a, this was a very fun story, kind of what you would expect from Mark Wade, very sort of classic DC and uh, as I said, the Dan Moore art, action-packed, really great job uh, on the colors as well from Tamra uh, Bondalan. So, uh, I, yeah, I loved it. It's interesting. I can't wait for this, for Batman and Superman to go looking through time uh, for Robin, whether or not the Doom Patrol uh, go along for that mission. Uh, going to be interesting to see. Uh, I'm going to be curious about that. Kind of won't mind if they do, but then in a way it stops being world's finest a little bit and starts becoming more like a, de facto justice league uh, title so i guess we'll see how it all works out uh okay up next catwoman at number 45 this is from writer tinny howard sami basri is on pencils vicente sifuentes on inks robbie rodriguez does the art for pages 12 through 14 we've got jordi blair on colors and uh, tom napolitano on letters um the art's pretty solid i i actually didn't even notice that robbie rodriguez did the art for pages 12 through 14 so uh, I guess that's a good thing in a lot of ways. Um, it didn't uh, pull me out of the story or anything like that. So, um, you know, in looking at it now, I, I guess I can see it, but he definitely tries to use more of a, a cleaner style than he, he typically uses. As far as the story goes, uh, man, it really uneven for me. Um, and, and part of that, I think, is maybe just what this issue is in a lot of ways, it's almost like a a catch-up issue. Like, Hey, let's make sure we uh, remind everybody that Catwoman is in Gotham city and it ties into, you know, a bunch of other stuff that's going on. So I like it for that reason. I like that we get, uh, you know, basically the same scene that we got in the Batgirls uh, title last week where Catwoman shows up and is talking to them about the sniper that they've captured and, uh, and all that stuff. Um, and now we get it from Catwoman's point of view. I like that. I like that it ties into what's going on in, uh, in Nightwing, um, because it, it makes it feel like that stuff matters. You know, we even have some, uh, Tim Drake Robin showing up here as well. So I like that it ties into everything that's going on and it, it, it's kind of the continuity stuff that we like, but at the same time, um, it makes it a little bit choppy. Uh, and I, I thought that especially the dialogue doesn't really flow. So, you know, it's like, what do you want to do? Do you want Catwoman to be, you know, separated from Gotham city and on its own and you don't have to read anything else that's going on, mm, you know, that's legitimate or do you want it tied in and to make her feel like she's part of the bat family, you know, that's legitimate too. So this is definitely one where it ties in. Um, but this issue is sort of symptomatic of what the series has been so far, which is just why, you know, wildly different, even based on the artists that they've had. I mean, the last couple issues, we had a very different style of art with Catwoman and Harley Quinn on this, on that road trip. And it just had such a different tone. I almost would think it was a different writer. So 
I, I kind of hope that Tenny Howard sort of settles into, I don't want to say a status quo, but kind of decides on a, on a style or a tone that she wants the series to take and just kind of sticks with it. We do get a little Valmont here. Um, and I do sort of like the really sort of st- strong personality that she gives Selena. Um, it's a strong personality that's reminiscent of what uh, Ram V was doing, but it's not exactly the same. You know, the, uh, I feel like Ram V's Selena had a little bit of vulnerability, which we've seen that in the past, you know, with her trauma and sometimes different writers write Selena where her trauma is closer to the surface and she's a little more sort of self-critical and, and, you know, maybe a little more uh, raw and a little more vulnerable, um, a little more in her own head. Uh, and Tinny is, is sort of the opposite of that, at least has been so far. And uh, Ram V's was sort of in the middle of that. I think I like that best. Um, so again, just, just a little unevenness uh, in the series, but overall the art's good. Uh, really liking the character of Almont. So uh, I guess we'll see where it goes from here. Um, up next, we have DC versus Vampires All Out War number one. This is written by Alex Pacnadel and Matthew Rosenberg, who's Matthew Rosenberg has been a part of all these DC versus Vampires stories. Uh, the art is by Pasquale Colano. Tones are by Nicola Re, I think is how you say it R I G H I. Maybe it's Rehi or rig high, but I, I'm pretty sure it's re um, letters by Troy Petrie. So the reason it says tones rather than color. So this is in black and white. Uh, and the only other color is different shades of red. So it's almost like, you know, black, white, and red sort of limited color palette. Uh, those anthologies that we've been seeing uh, it's all about Deathstroke and the, the blue devil um, as well as damage who is, for lack of a better term, damage, all wrapped up in bandages. Uh, Daniel Cassidy, Blue Blue Devil. And they're all taking Batman's body to what they think is the last Lazarus pit on Earth to try to uh, revive him. And they're ambushed there by Azrael, um, basically uh, an Aztec and a couple, a couple of other uh, heroes that have been turned into vampires. And basically, uh, there's a council, there's a council, that's making decisions for the heroes that are left on what they want to do and why. And Deathstroke doesn't think they do enough. He thinks that the heroes that are left are being bogged down by bureaucracy and whatnot. And he feels like they need Batman back to sort of give them an edge. And uh, it doesn't go well, basically, <laughs> because these people were waiting um, and come to find out the Lazarus, whatever's in the Lazarus pits, is actually lethal to vampires because um, although it doesn't go well and damage appears to be killed and uh, blue devil appears to be killed. Nightwing does manage to escape, but in the, in the midst of the battle, um, Azrael also gets appears to be killed and gets thrown into the Lazarus pit, but then is revived by the Lazarus pit, but comes back as no longer a vampire. So when they get them, when Destro gets uh, Azrael back, uh, Kirk Langstrom, Manbat, uh, examines him and realizes, hey, we had a cure all along. No wonder the vampires went and wiped out all the Lazarus pits. Um, so 
Deathstroke actually brought back a sample, but it's already it's already been used basically by Azrael. So whatever properties it had that is harmful to vampires, it's not, those are no longer being um, exhibited. So we get a a glimpse at this sort of headquarters, this underground, deep underground uh, bunker where the remaining heroes are trying to to mount an offense, and damage shows back up, and they don't realize that he has been turned into a vampire. And um, he goes on the uh, attack, and that's sort of where the uh, the issue ends uh, with this all-out war um, as he infects Captain Adam with something and causes him to explode, causing a, a nuclear explosion. So, um, yeah, basically wiped out or looks to have wiped out one of the last strongholds of, uh, of heroes. So it's an interesting choice for the colors. Um, I suppose it's better than just black and white, but I don't know. The art style is not my favorite. It's not the cleanest, especially the early battle. It's really hard to tell what's going on. Um, but the dialogue is strong and, uh, it is a tightly paced story. It moves along pretty, pretty, pretty briskly. Uh, there's also a backup that's called who's trapped by Guillaume Segalin. This is the same person that did the uh, backup that was in the most recent future uh, future state Gotham future state. Uh, he also did one of the backups in future state Gotham. And it's the one that Rocky really, really loved the art. Uh, Cause this uh, Guillaume does both the, the line work as well as writes the story. This one is in black and white with a little bit of red, just like the opening story is, but much more of a Eastern style and almost manga. Um, and again, it's a bat girl story. Cassie, uh, Cassandra Kane, uh, Batgirl story. So it's basically uh, Jim Gordon and a bunch of members of the Gotham City Police Department look like they're breaking into the roof of the uh, GCPD and they turn the bat signal on, even though they know Batman's gone uh, to, and they want to call Batgirl. What you don't realize is that they're all vampires and they pretend not to be, uh, but Cassie is is way ahead of them. So she takes them out, including Gordon and you know, apologizing and saying she'll... Uh, She'll get revenge uh, on the vampires for what they've done to him. She promises, and she uh, she always keeps her promises. So real violent, um, unlike the art in the first story, even though there's tons of action, here you can kind of see what's going on. Um, not quite as messy. A little cleaner panels are better laid out. So um, I did find it uh, enjoyable. Uh, and I guess I'll mention here, a lot of the DC books this month or this week have a tribute to Neil Adams. Um and it's really great. So they're nine panel grids and it's, let's see, two pages of nine panel grids. Um, and the panels alternate between quotes about Neil Gaiman from really legendary comic creators. And then every other panel is a story that's written by Tom King and illustrated by Neil Adams' son, uh, Josh Adams. And then it's colored by Clayton Cowles and, uh, or I'm sorry, colored by hi-fi and lettered by Clayton Cowles. And it's a really poignant story. Um, it, it reminds us of what uh, a very important figure Neil Adams was beyond his incredible artistic ability. And that's what a lot of these quotes talk about, like how much Neil changed the game for creators. You know, if you've received royalties, if you ever got any art returned to you, like that was all Neil. Neil's the one. Uh, Neil's the one that got the Schuster and Siegel family uh, 
you know, taken care of because, you know, this billion dollar IP that DC owned and, and didn't pay them, but a pittance pit for it. So uh, very poignant, very worthy of Neil. Um, I especially like the last page. The last page is a full page splash with some more quotes on it at the top. Um, and then behind uh, or at the bottom below the quotes um, is Neil sitting at a table as if he's at a, a Comic-Con and he's just finished drawing a sketch for Dead Man who Neil may be most known for drawing. And then next in line is Batman, then Robin, then Ra's al Ghul, and so on and so forth with all these characters that Neil drew, Talia, John Stewart, uh, Black Canary, Hard Traveling Heroes, Superman. Uh, and the line just stretches forever. And the and name of the story is The Endless Line. And, uh, you know, kind of the intimation from Tom King here is all these characters are or should be very thankful for what Neil uh, did for them. Right. So uh, it's, it's just fantastic. They're all standing in line to say thank you to him. Um, it's almost like there should, should be a line, you know, maybe a second line that's just as long, if not longer uh, with comic creators, you know, you could make the argument that every, every comic creator since Neil championed for creators rights, every single comic creator who's worked for um you know, a bigger publishing company, oh, you know, would be standing in that line. That line would be awfully long. So again, very worthy uh, story and I, I really enjoyed it. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have Aquaman and Flash Void Song, book two, Anti-Hymn of Secret Truths. This is from writers Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. The art is by Vasco Gregorov, Georgiev. I'm not exactly sure how to know it's Russian. G E O R G I E V, Georgiev, I'm going to guess. Uh, Rain Barreto does the colors. The letters are by Troy Petrie. Um, the only thing I can say about this, I, I mean, I'm, st- I'm really, really enjoying it, but the characterization of Flash and Aquaman, this feels like a different Flash and a different Aquaman, like from a different multiverse, because um, they do act very different. But Barry is a little more nerd like. And Aquaman is a little more militant um, and they're really at odds, which I've never really seen um, them kind of not get along. Uh, And then there are things that happen within the story where you sort of understand why at the end um, they're not friends. Uh, And Flash even says at one point, he goes, you know, I'll help you fight against this alien invasion, but once it's done, I never want to see you again. So, you know, and, and, there are reasons for that, but the animosity between the two or kind of like the conflict, that's the only part of it that doesn't ring true. But I suppose, you know, some artistic liberties can be made because it makes for a really great story. Uh, It starts off and they are uh, trying to figure out a way to fight back against one of the, these void ships that's come down and Barry keeps running off, keeps telling Aquaman, Hey, you distract it. I'll be right back. And Aquaman's like, why do you keep running off? You know, I know you're not a coward. Like what the hell? Um, but Barry being Barry and, you know, trying to find a scientific solution. Uh, he goes and gets Captain Cold's uh, freeze gun. That doesn't work. And he's like, I don't, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Like based on the physics of the world that we understand taking something down to, you know, sub zero or absolute zero should stop it. But this does, this doesn't, um, and so he's trying to figure out, you know, why, why that's the case. Um, next, he goes and gets flashes uh, or uh, not flash, but Adam, the Adam's belt, 
which contains a, a dwarf star, right? So gravity, black hole, if you will. Um, and he tries to use that to take out this, uh, this monster. And that doesn't work. So once again, it's, it's like the sort of laws of science don't, don't make any sense. And it's a great scene um, where his mouth is just kind of hanging open and he's trying to like, I don't, you know, he's a scientist. Things should make sense. And they're not making sense. And Aquaman uh, snaps him out of it and said, you know, how about if we just do this, you know, the old fashioned way, just beat the crap out of it. So that's what they do over a series of a double page spread. And they do manage to defeat it just through pure, uh, pure sort of physical strength and attrition, but they're pretty wiped out and they're trying to figure out, you know, what they need to do. They only took out one of these ships and there's any number of them um, still around and flashes like, you know, if only we had some computer system that was still working that we could feed in all the information and the data and try to understand what's going on. And Aquaman mentions that Mira had this, um, this lab built with sort of the Atlantean equivalent of a supercomputer and it's uh, buried very, very deep. And so maybe much like himself being very, very deep in that trench wasn't affected by the void song. Perhaps they can go there and, and, uh, and use it and it's not affected. And sure enough, Aquaman, they go there and it's not affected. They run into Mira along the way and you can see how much Aquaman is sort of hurt and worried and um, wants to find any way to save Mira because she's, you know, blacked out singing this song with the black eyes, just like everybody else on the planet. So after feeding all the information into the computer, um, what they come to realize is this void, it, it is sort of the, um, it's sort of exactly what it is in a lot of ways. It nullifies matter, right? So all matter is made up of, you know, uh, atoms and within atoms, the electrons and whatnot, everything's moving. There's, there's movement there, right? Kinetic energy, everything on earth, the earth itself is, you know, spinning and moving through the universe. And so everything on earth technically is charged with some kinetic energy, right? Like, just like um, if you, have a ball in a car that's, and the car is traveling, um, you know, and you let go, the ball doesn't just drops straight down. It continues moving because it's got momentum, right? It's got kinetic energy stored within it. The outside force of the car is acting upon it and the, the ball itself has energy. So what this void does is it eats kinetic energy. And so eventually that's how it will kill the planet. It will eat all the energy, all the kinetic energy, um, and leave nothing. That's how you kill a world <laughs> is how flash puts it. So they need to figure out how to stop it. But as they're, um, analyzing it, they they've been followed basically. And, uh, they get attacked by some more of the sort of scout ships, if you will, of, um, of the, the void ship. So, they leave, they fight it, um, they break inside one of the scout ships, and they hear sort of the words of the song, the lament that is playing, and it basically is almost this poem talking about um, praise for the lament, the death of speed, because at the end of the day, what this, you know, when you talk about kinetic energy, that's all tied into speed force and movement and whatnot, and this void is sort of the opposite of that. Uh, and Barry feels a little bit guilty that he didn't know this was coming, that he didn't know this was out there because he's so connected 
to um, to the Speed Force. So um, he's feeling like it's his fault that the whole reason the Void came to Earth is because they hunt and they eat Speed Force, and obviously he uses Speed Force, and he feels like he must have been the reason that the Void um, came to Earth. Basically, he he attracted. Uh, attracted him so they do manage to destroy the scout ship um which basically uh takes some some team effort as the void tries to get inside barry and and eat the speed force from his body he's able to sort of expel it from his body causing a big explosion which destroys the ship and it basically frees atlantis because that ship, that mothership that they broke into, uh, one of many around the planet, but it, now it's no longer sort of broadcasting its signal. So the people within its sphere of influence uh, are no longer sort of in that trance. So immediately Aquaman swims down, finds Mira. Uh, she's awake and um, he's very happy. And uh, But Flash ever the thinker is like, well, so what? what's going on? Like... Um, what did you guys do? And Aquaman's like, um, I'm having a moment with Mike. He's like, no, you're going to answer my question because, you know, the speed force ripples across the earth and has been, we've been using it for, you know, almost a century. And all of a sudden these void songs just show up. Now they're fast enough to, to come in and catch the justice league napping only now they've only just arrived now we've been using the speed force for you know 100 years why now why is it that they're here why is it that they wanted atlantis they it wasn't that they followed us here um because they're not coming after us now like what did you do and mira kind of freaks out and starts yelling at him um which is sort of reminiscent of the mirror we had in batman urban legends last week um, which I don't think is really on point, but like, oh, you know, what are you accusing us of? Blah, blah, blah. And Aquaman comes clean. He's like, stop. He needs to know. And so basically what he tells him is Atlantis has been uh, working on their own space program. It's like my people live at the bottom of the sea, but they deserve to see the stars. And basically they needed a fuel that couldn't burn because they're underwater. And so they tapped into the speed force. And tried to use the speed force as a means of powering their their rockets. And that's what drew the void uh, to Earth. And so that's where um, the Flash is upset and says, you know, uh, we'll use your rocket that you built with the speed force and we'll take out, you know, as many of these motherships as we can. But once this is over, uh, yeah, I never want to. I never want to see you again. So they're going to use this ship that was built um, and try to take out, they basically need to take out all of the, uh, all the motherships, if you will, that are um, hanging out around the earth. But yeah, whether or not they can um, remains to be seen. So uh, interesting premise. Like I said, the, the, the characterization of Aquaman and, and Flash does seem a little different than any version I've seen before. doesn't make the story any less fun. I think they kind of need that animosity and antagonistic relationship to, to make it work. I imagine it'll all work out in the end because, you know, this is a DC comic. Um, but at times it's just, it just feels a little weird. 
that being said, I think the colors are fantastic. I think the pacing is fantastic. The ideas behind the story are great and uh, love the line work as well. So it's, uh, it's a really, really great story. I'm enjoying it uh, immensely, much more than I, than I thought I would. Uh, okay, moving on next, we have Flash 784. This ties into Dark Crisis. It's written by Jeremy Adams. M&K Noelapan is the artist. Jeremy Cox on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Really fast-paced issue. Uh, we know that we had a, a big group of Flash uh, allies enter the, the speed force, if you will, and end up in different parts of the multiverse, all searching for the lost Barry Allen. So we have uh, Max Mercury and Jesse Quick, and they're in this sort of Mad Max sort of world where Barry doesn't seem to have speed powers on his own, but drives a really, really fast car. And we get a chance to check in on them. Uh, we get a chance to check in on Irie and Jay, who are in this sort of dark Gotham-like setting where Barry Allen is the night flash. And is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Uh, we're not really sure. But again, we just get a glimpse, a few pages of that, um, where uh, the night flash shows up. Irie and Jay run away from him, and uh, they're just about to be caught when somebody opens a door and says, Hey, over here, you don't have much time. And they do disappear into the darkness of this warehouse. We have no idea who that person is that was uh, trying to help them. And we don't like, why is the night flash chasing them? Is the night flash a bad guy? Like what exactly is going on? We don't know. And then the last third of the story, we see our Wally West and our Wallace West. And they're in sort of the silver age where everything is colored with um, like dot matrix printing, like old school comics and we see the uh, Wally West as a kid flash. We see Barry Allen and I try to talk to them, but for whatever reason, the old school Barry Allen sees uh, the present day or our Wally West as the reverse flash. He's under some kind of spell or hypnosis or whatever. So that leads to uh, a big knockdown drag out fight. And meanwhile, Wallace West has followed Wally West back to uh, his house and he's all of a sudden in his silver and black and red costume and sits down for dinner and very silver agey. Um, it's almost like they're trying to brainwash him the way they brainwashed uh, this Barry Allen. So again, that's it. That That's all that happens. It's a very fast paced issue. Three different styles of art from Noella Pan and he does a fantastic job. The colors are also uh, very distinct for the three different realities, if you were, from Jeremy Cox. So he does a fantastic job as well. Um, the only thing that I don't like about this, um, I mean, I do like that it's sort of on its own still uh, telling the story that Jeremy Adams was telling. But I have to wonder how much of the story he's telling was influenced by the fact that he knew dark crisis was coming. And this is, you know, dark crisis tie in. Um, and Barry Allen did go missing in the pages of uh, infinite frontier, which was a prelude to dark crisis. So I don't know. I just wonder like if dark crisis event wasn't happening, we'd be getting the, sort of the, the Jeremy Adams stories where he has more creative freedom. He's not obligated to tie in. And I sort of like those better because he's been doing a fantastic job on the flash and, given us these stories that are fun and feel sort of timeless. This doesn't feel like that. You know, it's still good. It's still fun. It's still action packed. It's technically a very uh, well put together comic, but it doesn't have that same 
sense of fun and wonder that Adam's uh, books normally have or, or his flash run ha- has had. So I don't blame him for that because again, he's having to tie in. Um, so while I'm interested in dark crisis, in my mind, nothing much has happened yet. I'm, I'm ready to, to get into it and sort of experience it and have it be over and done with and let Adams get back to doing what he does best with the flash. Um, and for the rest of the DC universe, just, okay, we know dark crisis is going to, fundamentally make some changes. So let's just, I'm ready for what's on the other side of it, basically is what I'm saying. You know, I'm ready for what comes in 2023. If that's, we know dark crisis runs through the end of the year. So does Alfred come back? Is the universe continuity going to be cleaned up a little more? Um, Cause this, everything counts thing, just, man, it makes things so messy. I don't know how well it works. So I wouldn't mind dialing that back uh, a little bit. Uh, all right. Up next, Batman, the night part seven It's written by Chip Sadarsky. Art and cover by Carmen A. Dijon Domenico. Colors by Yvonne Placencia. Lettered by Pat Broso. My favorite issue of the series so far. Now, one of the best things I like about Chip Zdarsky's writing is how he ties in emotion and action of the characters. Um, and while we've had a little bit of that in the night, certainly more than we had in the first issue of Batman uh, that he did 125, it hasn't been as sort of... Uh, prominent as it is in this issue. So in this issue, Bruce has hooked up with John um, Zatara, which is Zatanna's uh, father, who was a friend of the Wayne family for a long, long time. So not a big surprise that he would agree to Bruce asking for training. Um, And basically what happens is in the story, when Bruce realizes that real magic exists, he wants to learn it. And both Zatanna and John, Zatara tell him, yeah, that's not something that's going to happen. Magic has a price. And you are so obsessed with your mission, once Bruce admits to them that's what's going on, uh, that you don't have it in you to pay the price. Uh, and so I, I, I love that because it explains why Bruce never went down that path. Like we know Bruce to be obsessive about his war against crime. So why wouldn't he have taken advantage of, you know, every means necessary, but he has no room to make that sacrifice. Plus uh, when he's working, trying to work, he does give it a try and try to learn some spells. And uh, Zatanna tells him, you have to let go of control. Magic isn't something you control. Uh, you have to just kind of let it flow through you. And, and knowing Bruce, the way she knows Bruce, Bruce, you'll never, give up control again, something very, very true. So I loved that sort of meta explanation into why Batman doesn't use magic. I also love that it, uh, this story leaned into the history that there is between uh, the the Zatara family and the Wayne family, specifically the relationship and the history that exists between Batman and Zatanna. When we reviewed the uh, Batman Zatanna story in Batman urban legends recently, I, talked about how much I'd like to see a Batman Zatanna romance, if you will, or relationship more so than uh, him and Selena. I just think it makes more sense to me. Um, so I love that aspect of it as well. So a lot of motion, not just from Bruce Wayne, but from Zatanna and her father you know, with their relationship and the loss of their mother. So uh, this was just a fantastic story. There is some action with this demon who's sort of haunting John uh, Zatara as he's uh, at the beginning of the story, sort of lost at the bottom of a bottle, mourning the, the loss of his wife. And 
he kind of goes on a little bit of a character arc as well and and sort of rejects that and, and realizes he needs to be something more. So again, a lot of emotion here. Great art by Dijon Domenico. Um, he doesn't have the cleanest style. And sometimes the tone of the stories in this series suit his art style better than others. And this is one of those cases. This is one of those instances where his uh, looser style fits. Um, specifically because it's magic, right? Magic is being depicted, demons are being predicted, um, depicted rather. So that looser style lends itself to the story really, really well. So again, my favorite issue of the series so far, absolutely loved it. So this is another one of those issues where, man, I really wish Rocky was here. So I'm very curious to, to hear his thoughts. Uh, okay, up next, we have Justice League versus the Legion of Superheroes. The credits page inside the book is in Interlac, which is the sort of made up alphabet of the 31st century where the Legion of Superheroes reside. So uh, Brian Michael Bendis, I know, is the writer. Scott Godlewski does the pencils. It says Cody on the cover. I'm assuming that's Ryan Cody on colors. I have no idea who the letter is. Sorry, I wasn't going to take the time to translate the, uh, the Interlac. Um, not really a big fan of the colors in this series, as I haven't been throughout. Um, I like the line work of the alternate or the variant cover very much, but I don't understand why the colors are so muted and faded. Uh, and that's the same thing inside the book. I just don't understand this choice of using these muted faded colors. Um, everything looks washed out and almost has this greenish tinge to it. And I, I just don't care for it. Uh, when you're talking about the Legion of superheroes, you're talking about characters who originated in the silver age. They're very traditionally superheroic. They're intrinsically DC uh, and that means big, bright, bold colors that feel like a superhero comic. And this doesn't feel like that. So that being said, as far as the story itself, I enjoyed this the best so far because I feel like we've got the biggest chunk of story so far. Um, we see the uh, Legionnaires and uh, Justice Leaguers that are trapped in the future and com Commandy's future um, get rescued. Uh, they're trying to, to get a message to um, the future and, uh, and they're rescued. We get a glimpse into the future where a lot of Justice Leaguers still are, Black Canary, Batman, talking to the uh, United Planets about, hey, do we need to evacuate Earth? They're, the great darkness is in the skies above Earth. They're trying to figure out uh, what they need to do and how they can possibly defeat it. We check in on uh, the Gold Lantern, who's back in um, sort of the golden age time of DC. He runs into the Alan Scott version of Green Lantern. Um, and sees a, a biplane fly into some of the dark, um, great darkness that's in the sky above uh, Star City, I suppose it would be if, if um, Green Lantern is there. Uh, and as this guy flies into it, his plane, you know, shows up in the future. So it's this great darkness that exists in all, you know, all times, all planes. Um, so again, Bendis tying in, much like Mark Wade did, tying in with what's going on or what will go on in uh, in Dark Crisis. So I do enjoy that part of it. Um, and then the uh, Legionnaires that are uh, still in the future, uh, Computo has been working on a way to pull in all the rest of the heroes that are lost through time and does manage to do it. Um, but one of the consequences of that is that and Computo sends out a message through the legionnaires flight rooms sends it out through time and says you know gather the justice leaguers that are there with you because we're going to use your uh, rings to bring you home and hopefully everybody will be able to survive it 
and everybody seems to for the most part, but for some reason, Oliver Queen, Green Arrow, is artificially de-aged to a teenager, so they have to figure out uh, how that is all going to work, and they still, even though they're all back together, the sky is still taken up by the great darkness, so do they need to evacuate Earth? Do is Will they have some way to fight against the great darkness? Like, there's no way to know. So, again, a lot of action, a lot of stuff goes down. A uh, little dialogue heavy. It is a Bendis comic, after all. Uh, but I feel like at least we're getting some form of momentum. Still not exactly sure what the point of the series is. You know, it's Justice League versus the Legion, but they've definitely been on the same side so far. Um, so not sure what that's about, but I am enjoying the series. I, I enjoy Scott Godlewski's artwork as well. I just, I question the the tone of the colors. I just don't understand why it's so muted. But anyway, I actually uh, enjoyed it. Best issue of the series so far, like I said. Uh, up next, we have Nightwing number 94, written by Tom Taylor. The art in this particular issue is by Geraldo Borges, Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. I'm not a big fan of Borges' art. It's much less clean. And I feel like Adriana Lucas, who's one of the best color artists working, he tries to color it the same way he colors uh, Redondo's art with a lot of sort of blues and uh, like lighter or brighter blues and pinks and yellows and oranges. And it, I just don't think it works as well. The colors don't pop um, because Borges's style is, is not as clean, uh, which is fine. You know, it's not bad art. The storytelling is certainly strong. Um, it's just not as, I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoy Redondo's art. As far as the story, a lot of stuff goes down. We see uh, Melinda, uh, Nightwing's supposed sister, Dick Grayson's alleged sister, uh, who's the mayor of Bloodhaven, sort of tricks the uh, the commissioner of police to uh, in implicate himself in the attack on Haven and unfortunately we know he's in the pocket of blockbuster and he tries to flee with a bunch of money and this information they use that information to get to blockbuster blockbuster knows that this went down he knows he must have a leak in his organization he's trying to rally the troops he thinks melinda's on his side as well so he goes to uh, visit her mother to sort of put some pressure on um because blockbuster is not happy that the mayor uh, named Maggie Sawyer, who people will know from the Superman uh, family of books for the last 20 years, as well as Dan Turpin, another character from Superman and the uh, Metropolis Police Department. She's uh, the mayor. Melinda has appointed Maggie Sawyer as, as commissioner and she gives excuses I in, because Blockbuster is not happy. Hey, this is somebody that I can't get to, not corrupt. And. The mayor's, you know, Melinda's trying to keep her cover, saying, ah, I picked her because she, they didn't give me much time. They gave me a list of candidates. She was the weakest one. Um, so she's still trying to, to save face. And um, Blockbuster thinks it's the electrocutioner who has betrayed him, who's the mole in his organization, if you will. And so, yeah, Blockbuster, Blockbuster goes and visits um, Melinda's mother, the implication being, hey, do what I say or I'm going to harm your mother, obviously. And then takes Melinda and says, yeah, I think it's this electrocutioner who's who's the mole and we need to stop Grayson. And, I'm, you know, I've been torturing him. He hasn't given up any information yet. And Melinda says, you know what, leave me alone with him. And she pulls out like these um, like pruning type shears 
uh, like she's going to cut off fingers or what have you. She said, I'll get the information out of him. But what she does is she actually tries to free him. She calls Dick Grayson. Hey, uh, you know, Blockbuster thinks that the electrocutioner is the mole. Uh, he's, you know, I was the one obviously that tipped you off. But, he, you know, Blockbuster thinks it's the electrocutioner. You got to come and save him. And she unties the electrocutioner. And, you know, here she is saving this guy's life. And he blasts her in the back and yells for Blockbuster and says, yeah, she's it. She's the mole. And, you know, when Melinda gets hit with the electricity, she drops her phone and uh, Blockbuster picks it up and says, hey, I'm afraid Melinda can't come to the phone right now, Grayson, uh, and smashes it in his hands while uh, Melinda lays there on the ground smoldering. So fast-paced issue, lots of action. Uh, it's out now. Melinda's in deep trouble. And obviously, as soon as that uh, phone gets smashed, even before, I'm sure as soon as Dick hears Blockbuster's voice on Melinda's phone, he's on his way to wherever she is, if if they can find out how. you know, um, I'm sure Oracle will be able to help with that. So again, another one of those issues where, man, I wish Rocky was here because I'm complaining about how slow this is moving. I've even said... Not a big fan of the fact that we haven't gotten uh, Melinda in the book much lately. Uh, and all of a sudden, she's uh, she plays a big, important role in this issue. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the confrontation between Dick Grayson and uh, and Blockbuster in this in this next issue. So great issue of Nightwing uh, line work, nonwithstanding, uh, again, not bad uh, storytelling in the the uh, and the visual aspect of the book at all, the sequential art is fine. Uh, just personally don't care for the style. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have Black Adam number two, written by Christopher Priest, Rafa Sandoval on art, Matt Herms on colors, Willie Schubert on lettering. Uh, it's, it's very much a Christopher Priest story in that there's a lot of seeds being planted here. You just have to take it with a grain of salt if it seems confusing. Uh, we get a month ago with... Uh, Black Adam talking to some woman in the CIA. What are you doing in my country? And she's talking about wanting to help stabilize the country. And he's like, you know, that's my job. So not exactly sure how that all ties in. But we do see uh, Black Adam sort of try to force this uh, this guy that uh, that he grabbed last issue to be. Uh, white Adam, I mean, his last name is White, Malcolm White, I think it is. Um, and he's like, I'm I'm not putting on the ring and saying the word, like, what the heck are you talking about? And they shoot him and it heals. Uh, and so he puts the ring on and says the name and he is transformed into White Adam. And he has a little bit, he's like, you know, I don't, he is obviously very much um, of a younger generation. He's like, you know, the whole black is bad, white is good sort of thing. Like nobody really does that anymore because Black Adam's whole thing is, you know, I've colluded and schemed with forces of darkness, with the forces of darkness, and you know, we want people to trust you and do what's best for Kandak. And um, then he kind of succumbs and, and passes out. And so now that White Adam's sort of in charge, uh, he does take him to a hospital, um, but unfortunately, Black Adam dies. So now it definitely appears that this Malik White is is black adam or white adam and the ruler of kandak for lack of a better uh better phrase right uh he is technically a descendant of uh of teth adam so 
what's going to happen next, I guess, remains to be seen. What that early scene with Tet Adam and the uh, CIA agent means, I guess we'll have to wait and see for that uh, as well. So fast-paced issue as well. It goes really, really quickly. The Rafa Sandoval art, I don't know. I feel like Sandoval's been changing his style to a much looser, more sketchy style. And as longtime listeners of the podcast will know, I'm not a fan of that. I prefer his art like when he first was drawing um, Green Lantern when Robert Venditti took over, a uh, much cleaner style. Uh, not that the storytelling isn't good because it's still fantastic and the lightning and the colors pop off the page. So you know, I have no problem with, with any of that. Um, kudos to uh, Matt Herms, the color artist, for, for giving a, a really good rendition of lightning. That's always something that's important in a Black Adam or Shazam or Captain Marvel book. Um, so that's all great, but uh, just the style could stand to be a little cleaner in my mind. So, uh, all right, moving on. Next, we have the Jurassic League, uh, written by Juan Gideon and Daniel Warren Johnson, art by Rafa Garys, colors by Mike Spicer, letters by Farron Delgado. So Juan Gideon did the art for the first couple of issues, very much in sort of a Juan Gideon style, which isn't so dissimilar from Daniel Warren Johnson's style. And this Rafa Garris, his style is similar as well, but it's more, I don't even know what the right word is. Like the lines are, the line works, the line weights are heavy. And so I don't like that. And the other part, it almost looks like every line is drawn with charcoal. Um, Like I know he probably works digitally, but he's not using like a fine line or a fine brush. And so like, there's almost not a single straight line in the whole book anywhere. Everything is kind of wavy and scritchy and yeah, like everything is drawn with black charcoal and it gives the whole entire book this kind of dirty, like the art feels dirty to me. Um, You know, not dissimilar in a way from when artists do ink spatter, like they're trying to artificially add like this texture to the art or, you know, it's kind of a visceral feel. Um, so I didn't care for the art on this one um, much at all, uh, especially because it's filled with action. There are tons of fights between these different dinosaurs. Um, and the problem with that is a lot of times I can't, I can't even figure out what the heck's going on because the art is so, um, is so rough in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't care for the art. I haven't been a huge fan of this story. Um, and so when I have to flip back and forth, I mean, when you see these dinosaurs that are, you know, kind of rocky and spiked and whatnot, and they're like punching each other, but all you get is the, their fist coming through the panel, punching one of the hero dinosaurs, you almost can't tell what it is because obviously they're, they don't have the you know regular anatomy of a human where uh, you know it's it's you know fingers forming and a hand forming a fist it's fingers and a hand forming a fist that have all these spikes and other sort of textures on it and it ends up just looking like a blob of goo um and so yeah with cleaner art i think i would like this better but I, it was a struggle for me to read this issue i just really didn't like it um and i again it's not completely on the art because this just doesn't feel like it's for me, like dinosaur justice leaguers. It's just, even when I heard about it, you know, I was like, well, that's not something that I'm really interested in. That doesn't really sound fun to me. Um, But 
again, there may be an audience for it. We've talked about whether or not it could be kid friendly, but I do feel like it's so packed with violence that it's not really that kid friendly. Um, maybe 12, 13 year old can handle it. But anyway, uh, I hope for Juan Gideon or Daniel Warren Johnson himself on art uh, in the next issue. Um, and as far as what's going on, I, I'm sort of lost. It, this was just a bunch of fights. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe if Rocky was here, he could explain what's going on better. So maybe next issue we'll get, a, we'll recap this one and I'll understand, or maybe I just need to go back and pay more attention or read it a little closer. It's just, I struggle with it, with the, the visual narrative. So, uh, all right. Up next is duo. We're up to issue number three. Again, there's no credits page inside. So I apologize to the letter artist. I don't know who it is. I don't know who to give credit to, but it is written by Greg Pak. Koi Pham does the line art, Scott Hanna on inks, Chris Sotomayor on colors. We do know it's these two scientists that are um, sharing a body, uh, Kelly and, uh, and David and they're trying to figure out a way to get Kelly a body. So David actually goes back to their employer, even though they know he's the one that betrayed them because they're hoping to get access to the research lab again and regrow Kelly a body. But what they find out is it's not as easy as all that. And they also find out that there is a possibility of just growing a brain for Kelly and um, I'm putting it in an Android body. Kelly freaks out at that idea and that sort of emotion, that strong emotional reaction, once again, allows her to take over David's body or move it at least. And she's, she's sort of losing herself trapped inside David. And so David does relinquish control of his body that allow, that allows Kelly to be more present. But once she does that, um, maybe, because of the fact that she hasn't had control of a body, hasn't, even though she feels what David feels, it, it, obviously this is something different to feel like she has a body again. She leaves the place of uh, their place of former employment, goes outside and then realizes that if she concentrates, she can use the nanites to sort of shape change the body and make these sharp claws. She can fly. She's like, David, why haven't you been doing this stuff? How could you ignore all these abilities? You know who killed me. Why haven't you gone and gotten revenge? And David's like, I, you know, I've been busy dodging bombings and fighting flesh spots and killer drones and just trying to keep us alive. And Kelly, again, I think sort of drunk on uh, the feeling of having a body again says, you know, we know who attacked us. Let's go straight to the source. And David is unable to get control back of the body. And, uh, can't stop Kelly from going to this Dr. Chung and, and, you know, she's the one that she, uh, he's the one that she believes is behind her, the blow up of the lab and her death. You know, it was just four hours after the buyout uh, was rejected. Um, and then all of a sudden she's killed. So obviously Chung didn't like the fact that his buyout offer was uh, rebuffed. And so they go and they confront them and Chung is with all these other superpowered beings, uh, some of whom have been attacking Kelly and David. So they clearly feel like they're on the right track. And uh, before the battle can really start, Chung tells everybody, hey, knock it off. Let me explain to you, David and Kelly, what's actually going on. While he thinks he's just explaining it to David, he doesn't realize Kelly's controlling David's body and that the two are now one. And so we basically learn what the 
immutables are in this issue. Um, and it's great. They're basically immortals, right? They are people whose cells regenerate eternally. And they're really rare. They're only about one in every billion people. And basically why they were trying to stop Kelly and David's research is because they've lived so long, they know the dangers of what they're doing, right? Uh, they're like, first of all, the danger of living as long as we have is you stop getting, you stop having perspective on human life. Like you basically become a sociopath because you live past a certain point and you just don't have empathy anymore. You've lived too long. And so, um, you know, if you gave this to everybody, the human race would destroy itself and the entire planetary ecosystem, probably within a generation, because everybody would be these psychopaths. Um, in addition to the fact that the earth simply doesn't have enough resources, it would be a disaster of overconsumption if uh, there was no sickness. And so that's why they're trying to stop, um, to stop the research. So Kelly actually is considering this. David's freaking out. Like he kills people. We don't hang out with murderers. Give me my body back. And there are members of the immutables who just want to kill David. Uh, and we actually see Dr. Chung kill one of his own people. Um, so they are, even though they're immortal, apparently they are still able to be killed. So uh, Chung is like, okay, I need the answer. Uh, David, are you going to join me or not? And right at that moment, um, what looks to be these androids, same type of Android body that we saw um, David think about putting uh, Kelly's consciousness into come flying into the room saying, David Kim, you can't trust the immutables come with us. Um, we're going to fight for humanity. And that's where the next, uh, or this issue starts off, uh, or ends off and the next issue will start. So really cool ideas. Um, the Koi fam art, I, I just, the first issue was the best one where his art was the cleanest and it felt um, like something really special. Uh, I don't know if he's a little more rushed now. It, the storytelling is really, really strong, but I, I sort of feel like the uh, the backgrounds have gotten to be less detailed and it just doesn't feel quite as sharp um, as it has been to start with, but uh, it's a minor nitpick. Overall, I'm really, really enjoying the story. Love the dynamic between Kelly and David and the sharing this body. Um, you know, it raises a lot of questions. If you could share a body with your wife, you know, wife and couldn't have any secrets or hide any thoughts. Um, and now it seems like as aligned as they've been philosophically, um, that now that there may be a schism forming. Uh, so, you know, two sides of uh, a different coin, two sides of the same coin, I guess you'd say. Um, where Kelly is sort of considering what Chung is saying and David's just freaking out going, no, we can't even stop to consider it. So maybe they're not as alike or simpatico as they believed that they were. So anyway, it's a great, uh, it's a great title, uh, especially being milestone. It feels fresh and new. Um, and again, if you're not aware, this is a new property, new milestone property. It didn't exist back in the nineties milestone. So uh, all right. Up next, we have Artemis Wanted. This is written by Vita Ayala. Skylar Patridge does the art. Removal for Heart of Junior on colors. Pat Broso on letters. Uh, don't really have a lot to say about this. We find out about uh, the truth of the death of Hippolyta. Hippolyta. Sorry, I'm tired. <laughs> I completely butchered her name. Hippolyta. 
Um, and it's exactly what I said. Uh, Hippolyta f- asked Artemis to make the sacrifice to poison her. And it had everything to do for some reason, the sacrifice of uh, Hippolyta committing suicide basically. Um, but technically being murdered because Artemis gave her the poison to drink and then Artemis carrying that ordeal, like somehow all that pain and trauma made the Amazons worthy in a way, apparently Hippolyta was able to pay the price to ascend to godhood. And she's up at Mount Olympus right now as sort of this champion for the Amazons to make sure the gods don't mess with them. Uh, It's all a bit convoluted and a bit, I mean, it makes sense for the story, but, you know, predictable, obviously this is exactly what I said. It was the reason that she got killed. Uh, Donna Troy and Cassie Sandsmark are pursuing Artemis and the characterization of them is a little bit off as well. I mean, it's consistent with what has been lately, but, you know, during the trial of Amazon's Rocky and I both had a little bit of trouble seeing Cassie Sandsmark as a detective, but apparently that's the role she's going to play in the Amazon Amazonian corner of the DCU. She's the Amazonian version of a detective. So I guess just get used to that. Donna Troy comes across as very hot-headed and very close-minded. Um, and so that felt a little uh, wonky and out of place. But at the end of the day, Hippolyta shows up and explains to Donna Troy and Cassie what happened. And it's not necessarily happily ever after because Hippolyta has to go back to Olympus to continue to um sort of look out for the best interests of the Amazonians from Mount Olympus while the rest of the Amazon Amazons get to go home and it's explained to them what uh, Artemis did and uh, Queen Faruka sort of pardons her. And uh, I guess where the Amazons go from here, we'll have to wait and see. Um, so I, I guess this was needed to wrap up that story, but at the same time, I didn't need it because I knew exactly or I suspected exactly what was behind the murder of uh, Hippolyta. And I was a hundred percent right. So um, the art by Skylar Patridge is fantastic. It's paced really well. For the most part, the dialogue is pretty strong from Vita Ayala. Obviously with that characterization being just a, a little off or a little twisted or a little turned or, I mean, they're tr- obviously they're trying to evolve Donna Troy, change her a little bit, change her characterization a little bit, a little more of a hothead. Um, I mean, she's part of the Banna McDowell tribe now, and they do tend to be a little hot-blooded. Um, and this idea of Cassie Sandsmark as a detective. So not quite sure that Vita has their voices down exactly right, but I can kind of forgive it because, again, th- these are sort of new directions for these characters. Uh, I am reminded of how much I like Artemis as a character, though. Um, as much as this was sort of predictable and tropey, it sort of fit right in line with who she is. You know, if, if her queen asked her to do something, she's going to do it. Even if it puts her in a bad light, she was willing to sacrifice her life. She's willing to pay the price because she was sworn to secrecy, um, because Hippolyta didn't want, uh, anybody to know, and thus it wouldn't have been a true sacrifice. Um, so again, the, Reasoning of it is a little kind of wonky and convenient, but at the end of the day, I guess it works. 
Uh, all right, up next, we have Dark Crisis, Young Justice, A Tale of Two Cassies. This is written by Megan Fitzmartin, Laura Braga's the artist, Luis Guerrero on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. Um, you know, we talked last time or the first time that we that we covered um, Young Justice, the, the Dark Crisis tie-in about how much it feels like it ties in with the old classic era of Young Justice, which I never read. But Rocky, uh, you know, vouched for it and said, yeah, it definitely feels like it's of that time. And so for that reason, I, I think that it works on that level. Um, but what we see in this issue is Impulse and Superboy and Tim Drake Robin are realizing that something's not right. You know, as much as everything is supposed to be, um, you know, they're, they're old, you know, they're pulled back into their old time and they realize that something just doesn't feel right. It feels artificial. It feels fake. There's some cracks showing in terms of misogyny and um, homophobia and that sort of thing. So in that way, Megan Fitzmartin is sort of leaning into her ideas of um, social inequalities. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, um, but it's, it's, it makes for an interesting story and it's, it's still very much a mystery of where exactly they are and why they are there and how they got there. But they're really, cause at first last issue was almost like, Oh, they're back to a time in their lives that they really enjoyed. And, you know, uh, Superboy and impulse were saying, well, yeah, maybe this is how things were always supposed to have been. We have a chance to kind of do things over and chance to make sure that justice league doesn't die and all that sort of stuff. And they're almost willing to accept it. And now as these cracks start to show and they realize things aren't quite right, um, they're trying to figure out where they are and why and get back home. So uh, how that's all going to happen, I guess we'll have to wait and see for uh, for next issue. But um, And how this ties into Dark Crisis, still have absolutely no clue. Absolutely none. Uh, I will say, though, that in terms of tone, this is exactly what I was talking about for color work for um, Justice League versus Legion Superheroes, because this is brightly colored. Um, it very much evokes that time, uh, that sort of bright, traditionally superheroic Young Justice series from way back. Um, but I love, I love that there's a darker undercurrent here, and that's not ignored by Fitzmartin, especially when she brings in uh, kind of relevant societal topics from from now right where things aren't going so great it's a good contrast and it shows that just because you're you want to tell a story that might have some more serious themes that doesn't mean you have to get away from coloring it super brightly and giving it this um, traditional superhero feel that is sort of juxtaposed against the big ideas and again it's, it's specifically works for this because they are supposed to be back in, you know, a more innocent time, if you will. So you want it colored like that, but it works on the surface level and it works on the meta level because uh, Laura Braga's artwork, very clean, um, almost a throwback, almost an animated, a little bit of an animated style. Uh, and it works really, really well. So again, not a young justice reader from back then, but Love that they're bringing in a lot of uh, characters and fights and whatnot. I mean, we saw them taking on um, the Mighty Endowed. And then during this issue, they also go and fight another one of their classic villains, Tora. Uh, and so I can just imagine Rocky probably loved seeing that. 
Uh, all right. Last book I'm going to cover in detail. It's Blood Syndicate Season 1, Number 3. This is written by Jeffrey Thorne. Pencils are by Tom Rainey for pages 1 through 4. Then Criss Cross on pages 5 through 20. Inks by Tom Rainey, pages 1 through 4. Juan Castro does the inks for 5 through 20. Colored by Will Quintana. Lettered by Anne World Design. Uh, the, the Blood Syndicate itself, the heroes, the hero team actually comes together. And we get an explanation of, of who they are and why. They're getting together. Uh, basically, this Holocaust character that we saw last issue is trying to consolidate power. He's taken out a bunch of the gangs on Dakota Island. And these these former gang bangers, if you will, these different members of different gangs have come together because they have superpowers and they want to stop Holocaust. So a lot of action in this one. And uh, I, I'm going to enjoy seeing them work together. I think the strength and interesting part of the team are going to be sort of at odds with each other um they're i feel like part of the reason blood syndicate is going to be formidable is because it's a good mix of powers uh and a good mix of personalities in terms of people willing to do what they need to do to get the job done but also some people who even though they've grown up on the streets been part of gangs maybe have a little bit more of a noble heart um but i feel like because they're all so different and strong will that is also going to cause friction, right? So I think Jeffrey Thorne, if he plays with that, that could make for some really interesting stories. Um, the only thing, and again, it's a minor nitpick. I feel like it's very apparent, maybe the first few pages of the issue is the the slang and the, and the way they speak. Again, it feels over the top to me, um, almost parody uh, in a way. And again, maybe it's just me. Maybe that's how they really talk out on the street. I'm certainly not street. Um, but uh, you know, I, even if that's the case, I feel like you're dating the comic, you're, you're setting it, you're rooting it in a certain time. And I've talked about it before. If you go back and read early ghostwriter issues that Gary Friedrich wrote, it, it's kind of has the same problem. Um, so when you get too much of the groovies or the far out mans or whatever, you know, it, it doesn't age well. So I just, I worry about that. Uh, but overall, I'm really enjoying this. I'm enjoying meeting the different members of the Blood Syndicate. I'm enjoying the art. The colors are absolutely fantastic. Hard to say who my favorite will be. Um, maybe Aquamaria, who has the ability to change into water and sort of control water. She seems to be uh, pretty powerful and some, definitely somebody who can go against Holocaust, right? Because his powers are fire-based. So uh, we'll see how that all plays out. Again, the art, really fantastic from Chris Cross and Tom Rainey. Colors by Will Quintana are fantastic as well. So, uh, all right. Well, that does it for, as I said, the, uh, the last book that I'm going to talk about in detail. There are a couple of other um, single issues that are being released. Uh, Fables 153. Again, I've never read any Fables. Rocky would talk about that if he was on, but obviously he's not. Uh, so, but that is coming out today. We also have Looney Tunes number 267 uh, that's coming out this week. In terms of trades, we have the hardcover for Superman number 78 and the new, the new Teen Titans volume 14 trade paperback is also coming out, uh, continuing to um, collect the George Perez and, uh, and Marv Wolfman era of Teen Titans. This collects uh new teen titans number 41 through 49 new teen titans annual four secret origins 13 secret Origins annual number three and tales of the teen titans 91 so 
getting a lot of bang for your buck there. We also have Legends of the Dark Knight uh, trade paperback that is uh, hitting stands today. This is the um, the series that uh, collects Legends of the Dark Knight one through eight. It's got a three point three part story by Derek Robertson. This was a released um, digitally first and then saw print. So that's out if you're a Batman fan and want to check that out. We've also got Justice League Dark, The Great Wickedness. Now, I'm pretty sure that this is the one that was uh, backup stories. Uh, no, yes. Collects Justice League Dark backup stories from Justice League 59 through 71. And also that Justice League Dark annual number one that we covered um, on the show. So much as we speculated, those eight-page backups are being all collected. There's also a DC League of Super Pets, the great mix-up trade paperback. There's a Checkmate trade paperback, a Batman Secret Files trade paperback, and a 52 Omnibus hardcover. 52 being the uh, the weekly the, uh, series that DC put out that was wildly successful and did really, really well. So well that they tried to replicate it with Countdown the following year, and that that did not go over so well. Uh, oh, also, uh, Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries Volume 2 is another collection that's out this week. So quite a few collections out. Uh, hope you get a chance to get out to your comic shop and pick up some of these books. Uh, again, don't forget to listen to our Best Jacket Spotlight. Hopefully, Rocky will be back next week. Uh, hopefully, his power will be restored soon. And again, glad that he's safe. Don't forget to follow us on social media so you can check out all our coverage of San Diego Comic-Con. Don't forget to head over to YouTube. You can watch the Best Jacket Spotlight there on Rocky's channel. Obviously, this will only be an audio release because Rocky was unable to join me. Uh, but Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point! Do a search for that on YouTube. You'll find Rocky's channel. Be sure to subscribe, ring the notification bell, leave comments, all that sort of good stuff. Uh, if you love the comic source, then go and subscribe. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate the support. Wherever you get your podcast, just do a search for the comic source. You'll find it and subscribe. And again, best way to follow along with San Diego Comic-Con is follow me on Twitter, as well as subscribe to the podcast. So again, thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate the support and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.